Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Again, have to be careful of the speed. What a comeback season for Hal Sutton. Come right back toward the hole. next guest on the be the right club today podcast is uh it's actually a first for us he's our first returning guest to have to have on the podcast you know that should make you feel really good money it should make your uh you know your ego even bigger which i don't know if uh i'm just, <laughs> just completely joking <laughs> you must be scraping the bottom of the barrel to have me on a second time well so here's the thing we like to joke here that hal and i don't don't sell our stuff very well and we've got a golf school coming up in october so we, we brought you on to shamelessly plug our golf school nice <laughs> so what's been going on not much just uh you know i'm, I'm getting ready to go to the Ryder cup this weekend um i got a coach uh a 12-year-old boys flag football on Friday night, and then I'm taking the red eye to uh, to watch the Ryder Cup on uh, Saturday and Sunday. Awesome. So let's let's talk a bit about Bryson. Um, I think it's really – a lot of people are sick of Bryson. I think it's really fascinating what he's trying to do. Um, you know, he's, he's said publicly he's been training for world long drive stuff, but yet he's playing in arguably the biggest event that we have in golf while he's also trying to swing as hard as he can and how and I, and you've talked about it all on here too, how important it is to hit it where we can find it and play golf. And to me, I view long drive versus golf. They're two different sports. Um, you've got one that's you're trying to swing for the fences and you get seven tries to hit one straight. And then you've got, you know, a Ryder cup. That's the most difficult place to play at and all. And, and I feel like you're, I said this off air, you're one of the few, very few that there's a few guys Sadlowski's done this a little bit but really good player played chased the PJ tour came really close but then it was also the longest longest hitter in the world at one point so talk a little bit about what Bryson's going through and trying to kind of weigh both sports so um back in the day the schedule was the world long driving championship was in the end of September and the first stage of Q school was the beginning of October. And uh, in 91 and 92, I finished first or second in the world long drive in 91. And then I won in 92. And then I was miserable at Q school when I went. In 93, I finished second again. Uh, Brian Pavlet last balled me or I had a one back to back. That's a sore subject. Um, but I made it through the first stage that year. And it was because what I learned from the failures of 91 and 92. It's kind of ironic because one would think swinging that hard uh, would ruin 
your accuracy off the tee. That was actually the, had the opposite effect. When I swung that long, we used a longer club in those days. Um, the, I used a 48 something around there. And my playing driver was only 44 inches at the time. So that was a fairly significant difference. And if you make a poor transition with a longer club, it's a total disaster. Okay. So it actually forced me to improve my transition sequence. And I actually drove the ball pretty well um, in 91 and 92. But where I was horrible and we see Bryson doing this all of the time, just when he's not even training for the world long drive, his distance control, especially with wedges, is atrocious at times. And um, I mean, the, the commentators make, make you know, jokes about it. He'll say, oh, be the right club. Oh, get in there. And it like comes up a full club short of the green when he thinks he's hit a good shot. And that was what I learned to do on the first two failures. When I, when I finished second again in 93, I took the next day off because I was tired. But starting the following day, I just sat on the range for hours and hours and hours and hit all of my short clubs from like seven iron down to, to L wedge. I tried to hit them two thirds of my stock yardages for those. And, um, and that's what really helped. So um, he's kind of doing it backwards. He's doing the Ryder cup first and then the long drive second. So he's going to have to you know, change that a little bit, but if you play it right, you can actually do both, but you know, this is his first time doing it. So there's likely to be, you know, some, some in, you know, some, some, you know, incorrect procedures that he doesn't know yet. How any, any thoughts on all this? I know this is, this is a little bit out of your element, but. Well, I've been quiet chase for a reason because uh, I, Monty, I practice with my seven iron down too, but that's what I did all the time trying to be accurate with shorter clubs. So I could hit it close. Uh, never swung at it hard to try to hit it long. That wasn't my, my mojo. So I'm, I feel out of place. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's, I, I'm really interested to see, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself in the podcast world and you're not supposed to do that, but you know, it's Wednesday before the, before the Ryder cup. And I'm, I'm interested to see, cause he's really been training long drive for the past, you know, he said publicly last four or five weeks. I mean, he was doing some of it during, during the FedEx. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how he does it. And I think, you know, looking at it now, after, after hearing you talk about it, money, I do think that this schedule is probably a little bit easier than your schedule was. I think getting the Ryder cup out of the way and then giving him the next week to just go all out, I think is probably say maximizes the chances for both to succeed, but this is just, we're just in such uncharted waters. I mean, you, again, you did it, but like to be the eighth best player in the world, but then to also, he, I, he's not gonna be able to beat Kyle or Berkshire or some of these, some of these super long guys, but to hit almost 220 ball speed. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. Well, <clears throat> here's the deal is swinging that and kind of goes back to what I just said, 
swinging that hard with a longer club ruins, well, ruins is a poor word, um, dampens your feel for distance, okay? And that was, when people say, Monty, what was the biggest weakness why you didn't make the tour? Um, you know, were you crooked off the tee? No, I wasn't. Were you a bad putter? No, I was above average for a professional. I was, you know, no one's gonna say I was a great putter, but I wasn't terrible. Um, how about your short game? No, that was one of the strengths of my game. The biggest issue that I had that kept me off the tour was I never got good at um, managing my distance because I swung so fast. Um, so, you know, it was not uncommon for me to pull out an L wedge from 115 yards, 120 yards. And with a balada golf ball was, that was, that's a total nightmare. And the reason why I bring this up and I'm so adamant about this is this is where the overwhelming majority of amateur golfers are not making themselves better golfers. It is not uncommon. Actually, it's quite common for me to play with golfers that I'm hitting the ball 50, 60, 80 yards past them off the tee. And then we get to a par three or we drop balls in the fairway to hit a wedge into the green and they're hitting the same club or even less club than I am. Um, people think they're supposed to hit their short irons full. I can hit a seven iron 210. I can hit a pitching wedge 165, 170 yards, even at my advanced age and weight. But um, I, I don't come close to hitting the ball that far on the golf course. And I think that's where, you know, getting back to Bryson, that's where he's going to struggle. And that's where he struggles even before. You see him hit shots that he thinks are good, that they're completely the wrong distance. And, you know, when he's, when he's hitting those pitching wedges, 165, 170 yards with that 38 um, inch pitching wedge or however long, you know, his wedges are, it just, He's never, you know, if you look at the stats, he's a terrible wedge player relative to it, you know, his colleagues. And, you know, this translates to the average golfer. The average golfer hits their wedges and their short irons way too hard. And as Hal said, Hal's the expert. You know, he said he's not an expert on hitting it hard. This is where he is the expert, hitting the ball solid, the right distance. I mean, I mean, how many people in the history of the game were better than him at that? Yeah. So this and is right, where and the right golfers fail. And the right height too. Like yes. that's the thing that with the longer clubs, like it's just it's hard to control trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. When you're hitting when you're when you're generating enough speed to hit pitching wedge, like a 260 yard driver of the ball hitting pitching wedge from 150 yards, good luck. Hal, any thoughts? I hit a 120-yard pitching wedge, you know. I could stretch it to 125 if I had to. It was easier for me to hit it 115 yards. Uh, but I knew it was going to come down somewhere in a three- or four-yard area most every time. And, uh, you know, I had to be specific if it was really tight, over water, forced carry, didn't want to suck it back into the water. You know, I thought differently than someone that hits at 150 yards. I just, I can't even, I'm staying out of the conversation because I don't have anything to add to it, really. 
I don't know anything about it. You know, how no, knowing what we kind of know now and all the stats guys say that, you know, how important hit and, hit and driver long is. I mean, do you, do you wish, cause you've, you've said you were, you felt like you were longer as a, and you're early on in your amateur career than you were in college than you were on tour, you know, in the, the early nineties, mid nineties, you wish you would have pushed, pushed the envelope a little bit. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I was pretty long in college. I, you know, Freddie couples played at Houston and he long and I won the driving contest in Baton Rouge. You know, we had two guys on our team that was long, but I won the driving contest. I used to swing at it harder, but, when I got on tour, Raymond Ford wrapped his arm around me and said, Hey, you got to learn how to hit it pin high. If you hit it pin high all the time, you will score. Well, you will become a great player if you do. And the minute, I mean, every Tuesday I played with Raymond and I started throttling back until I could control the trajectory and I could control where the ball came down. The days that I hit it straight was the days that I went real low because I knew where it was coming down and I hit it close to the flag. You know, when you're swinging it hard, like Monty's been saying, it's harder to predict that. And, you know, those short irons are your scoring clubs. That's that's what helps the putter out. The closer you hit it, the better off you are with a putter. Money, do you wish do you wish you could have taken away from your long drive success to help your wedge game? I mean, do you think that that I mean, I feel like knowing you and being friends with you for as long as I have, I feel like that that caused some of your swing issues with just just going at it as hard as you did for so long. I mean, do you agree with that? Do you wish you could have backed off and gone more golf and less distance? Uh, yes and no. Um, knowing what I know now, I know how to hit it full throttle with the driver and dial back. The, I didn't know how to do it in those days. Um, you know, I. When, when I throttled back on wedges, I didn't know how to do it correctly. So I, even when I was hitting it shorter, I still couldn't control my trajectory because I wasn't doing it right. Um, you know, no one explained to me, well, you know, this is back in the days where, you know, everything was about holding lag and holding angles and forcing shaft lean. So the way that I would bring the ball down was I'd lag it and push it even harder. And I was just putting too much, I'd bring it in low, but it just had, it had too much speed and too much spin. Um, Cause quite on, I mean, look, you never know. You can always look back and blah, blah, blah. But when I look back at my career, the times that I had a chance to win on the corn Ferry tour, which was the Nike tour, then the times that I had a chance to make it through the second stage of the Q school um, one of which the finals was at my home course. I could have walked to the first tee at the finals if I would have made it. Um, every time I failed, I don't remember a three putt or a driver out of bounds or whatever. I remember failed wedge play, um, you know, where, you know, I had, you know, round three, I had it 80 to 120 yards eight times and I was one over on those eight holes you know those are the kinds of things that stick with me and you know the reason why this is so important for amateur golfers I'm going to go back to what Hal said the most important thing in hitting the ball to the green is not left and right and that's what golfers oh I pushed that one oh I pulled that one uh I drew it and I was trying to fade it blah 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 the most important thing, and Hal, Hal hit it, 
hitting the ball the right distance is everything. And your average five to 18 handicapper is horrendous at hitting the ball pin high. Um, those, those, that group of golfers right there, they are not that handicapped because they don't make enough putts because their short game isn't good because they hit their tee shots crooked. They are that handicapped because they are horrible at hitting the ball pin high. You don't see that many tour players that come up short and bunkers are in the water short because no. they know how far they've got to carry the ball. And, you know, that happens every day in amateur golf. People hit it in the front bunker or whatever else. I mean, that is taboo for a professional golfer to come up short on something. And, you know, they're practicing enough. They're hitting it solid all the time. Uh, you know, they may hit one offline. They may miss it left or right. We can deal with that as long as we don't short side it. That's, that's I mean, I, I, I mean e even, even at my level right now, my level is I'm a just missing qualifying for champions tour events level golfer. So I'm okay, but not great. The only time I'm ever short is if I misjudge the conditions. Um, so even at my level, I understand that the only time I'm ever short is if I misjudge the win or misjudged, you know, how long the shot was going to play. Yeah. I mean, very rarely are, are, say scratch golfers are less going to flush one at the flag and it come up woefully short unless there's a gust of wind or something, you know, like yeah. most of the time tour players that come up short on par threes to front pins, it's because they just missed it just a little bit is a little toey, just a little bit, you know, just a little bit off. Um, you know, it, it, the, the running joke that I have is, is you go to any golf course and the front, like how said, the front bunkers look like a world war one battlefield. And the only action the back bunkers get is when someone blades it across the green from the front bunker mm -hmm. and it's a combination of things um golf it, it, golfers are trying to hit their short irons way too far they don't know how far they actually hit them and the number of times where they actually flush one is so small yet that's what they play as their stock yardage so when you put those three three things together you know, five to 18 handicappers are, are short, you know, 75 to 90% of the time. I saw Scott Fawcett tweeted this morning. One of the quickest ways to lower your scores is to hit more club into greens. You know, it was just like, it's just simple, hit more club, you know. You know, you know, that's a really interesting thing that, that I instill in all the people that I teach. And the, 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 the fear of long mentality is so strong that they just won't get over it. So I will tell all my clients, listen, go play golf. And, you know, their little wristwatches or the sprinklers have a front, middle, and back yardage. And I say, just for fun, go play golf. Whatever the back yardage is, hit that. Okay? Doesn't matter where the pin is. Just hit it to the back edge of the green. And without exception, they say, I shot under my handicap, but then here's where they, they run a foul about three or four times doing that. They'll say, okay, Monty, I was doing what you said. I hit to the back yardage and twice today I flushed really flushed two balls and I hit them over the green and made double bogey. And I said, okay, what'd you shoot? Well, 
well, I still shot under my handicap, but that's why I don't want to do that because I'm going to hit it over the green and make double bogey sometimes. And I go, I understand that, but you still shot under your handicap. So, you know, you made up for those two double bogeys with less bogeys and even threw in a birdie or two. Yeah, but I don't like hitting over the green and making double bogey. And I'm like, well, you know, that's, it's that kind of thinking that gets golfers in trouble. Um, you know, I can, I'm, I'm fairly sure I can speak for Hal that if he flushed one and hit it over the green and it went in the lake over the green or went out of bounds or went in a place where he had to take an unplayable and he made double bogey, he didn't spend the rest of the day coming up short fearing that doing that again. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you know, Jackie Burke used to tell me this all the time. He'd say, if you can't, he'd pull his money clip out and have a lot of money in it. He said, if you can't bet the whole thing that you've got enough club that you can fly it over the green, then you're hitting the wrong club. So he liked pulling too much club and throttling back. And, you know, today's world pulls too little club and goes at it as hard as they can go at it. Absolutely. And I think that's the wrong way to play golf. I agree. I, I, I heard one really funny Jackie Burke story from someone taking a lesson from him. He was following him around and he was just lamenting what club to hit. He's like, ah. and, and, and Burke got really upset with him. And he goes, what are you doing over there? Well, I don't know what club to hit. You know, I'm, I'm in between clubs. And he looks at him and he goes, if I asked you to hit this ball over the green, what would you hit? And he goes, a five iron. Well, wouldn't that make this shot a six? You know, simple thinking like that is, you know, it seems to, like you said, it seems to escape people. You know, how you, you've talked a lot on here about how you like to go practice on the course. How did you, uh, did you ever go out, like some of the, some of my coaches had me go out and hit on a par three, hit three different clubs, you know, hit the short one, hit the medium one, hit the longer one or whatever. I mean, did you ever just go out and practice like hitting three quarter shots and ex extra club the whole time? Did you have any specific drills you did? Uh, I do a lot of things. Uh, you probably can't mention anything on here that I didn't do at some point in time, just experimenting. You know, you mentioned something earlier, Monty, that, or, or Chase, I can't remember which one of you it was, but about how, you know, what you know now, if you'd have known it then, you would have been able to be useful with what you were trying to do. You said it differently than that, but something similar to that. That Golf parallels life in so many ways. I'm sitting here thinking the whole time that you were talking about that, that, man, I wish my body would allow me to do what my brain knows how to do now. And, you know, it takes a long time to mature in the game of golf. And, you know, one of the things that we notice in here, Chase, and I know you notice it too, Monty, is people want an instant fix. And they can barely comprehend how to do one thing. And if they took one thing a month and conquered the one thing a month in a year, they'd be a different player. But nobody wants to take a year to become a different player. But if they genuinely wanted to be good for the rest of their life, that's the way they would really attack that. That's the way a professional golfer attacks things. You agree with that, Monty and Chase? Absolutely. 
my favorite, and I, I've stole this from from Monty, but I had, a, I had a guy come in a couple of weeks ago, and he was griping about snap hooks, big hooks, um, probably a twelve handicap, fifteen handicap, and um, hooks, 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 and he's like, literally, I will do anything if you can help me get rid of the hook, right? And everybody just assumes that if they if we fix the hook, they're going to hit a dead straight. Like there's no other miss. It's just going to be dead straight. But they don't realize like the hook's going to turn into a block or a fade, like or a slice. Like it's the miss is going somewhere. There's just you just we're not robots here. And so now for the last three or four weeks, we've been working on getting him to release it a little bit more because it's all weak right now. He's not he's a right handed golfer. He's not hooking it anymore. And he's like, but everything's right now. I can't I can't fix it. It's going right. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Let's rewind the tape. You said you would you would pay me a million dollars if I could get rid of your hook. I did. Look what happened. Now we got to kind of bring you back a little bit or the this idea of we're going to go work on something on the range and then we pull one. Oh, we got to. We got to hold it off a little bit. Oh, we hit it heavy. Oh, we got to, you know, make a weight transfer. Oh, we, we hooked the next one. Oh, we released our hands too much. Like this, like Hal said, this instant gratification world we live in is just screwing golfers. Like you're never going to get any better if you can't just take a seat back, look at it from a 30,000 foot level and, and, and assess it that way versus on the micro level, each shot. It's funny you say that my Instagram post today is on exactly that subject. It's really fun. My miss with driver my entire life has been off the heel, high block right for my whole life. And I'll be playing with golfers and I'll hit a low toe hook in the trees and I'm like, nice. And they're like, was that sarcasm? I'm like, no, that's good. You just toe hooked it in the trees. I said, yeah, but that's different than what I hate. And they, they just, they can't comprehend that I'll hit a high block heel into the right side of the fairway and be livid and then toe hook one out of bounds uh, and go, okay, that's really, really close. I, I prefer that. They, they, they can't comprehend that, you know, and that's like what my post today, my miss has always been to the right. If you've come, if your entire life, your entire golfing career, you've come into impact with an open club face, you know, too open to the target or the path or whatever. And you make a change that gets that face more squared up to the arc, more squared up to the path, target, whatever. You're going to miss a bunch of balls left. It, it's a fact. And people don't want it. And I, I make jokes to people all the time. After watching them hit balls, I basically say to them, I go, so basically what you're saying is you're not allowed to miss it left. You're not allowed to miss it right. You're not allowed to hit it thin, long, and you're not allowed to hit it fat, short. That's what you just told me in the last 15 minutes when you were reacting to your rain session. And they kind of look at me and go, well, yeah. And then I shake my head and I go, excellent recipe to never get better and actually get worse. Amen. Amen. Hal, Hal, said, Hal said this at one of our schools, and it is one of the two or three smartest things I've ever heard by a golf, by someone trying to teach golf. He said, amateurs hit way more bad shots than they should because they don't give themselves permission to hit bad shots. That was one of the smartest things I've ever heard. And I use it every day. And of course I give hell credit for it. <laughs> well, you don't have to, you can take it for yourself there, Monty. You, you knew it. But I mean, that it's such a simple statement, but yet so profound. And 
you know, there's a line and, and I, I change where the line is all the time. Sometimes I say scratch golfers. Sometimes I say two or three. Sometimes I say plus two, you know, there's a line at which everybody on one side of the line is banging their head against the wall and everyone on the other side of the line is actually making progress to being a better player. Um, and I always tell everybody always wants to blame. Oh, I'm old. Oh, I'm fat. Oh, I sit at a desk 40 hours a week. Oh, I have three kids. I can only practice two hours a week, whatever, whatever. In my experience, those are not the things holding golfers back. A poor perception on how to get better, both in their swing and their management of their game, is what's holding golfers back more than the physical and life you know, constraints. So do you think it has something to do with just PJ Tour telecasts? That's I mean, a big part of it. You know, and, and how we've we've talked about this a lot. Did we lose you? No, I already is. I don't know what happened. No worries. Um, you know, we talk about it all the time. They're only showing the guys playing the best each week. I mean, you know, we're getting all access to all these other sports. Is it something where, you know, we get we get featured groups where they're following these guys around all the time and can see when – you know, Dustin Johnson shooting 75 instead of 65. I mean, you know, cause you, we've been fortunate enough to talk to, you know, obviously being able to talk to Hal all the time, but Nick Price was on here and Jim Furyk was on here. And like these guys that some of the best players to ever play the game hit bad shots. Like they're not perfect. And often, often. Right. And you know, Hal's uh, he'll get on a roll and he'll be as impressive as I've ever seen, but then he'll hit a couple bad ones in a row. And it's like, Hey, he's human. You know, it's, he's not a robot. Right. And so how do we, you know, how, what do you think? How do we get out of this, get these 10 handicappers that play once a month out of this idea that they've got to hit every one of them. Perfect. Well, we did a whole podcast on correct expectations. You know, uh, people are just, because of the PGA tour and what they see on TV, you know, they have these elevated expectations that are just incorrect basically. And, uh, you know, I, they don't even, we did a deal where we talked about inventory in your game. You know, these people are inventory and the best players in the world's game, not their own game. You know, they're judging themselves against them. And, you know, that's, it took years for those guys to develop that. I mean, I can't even begin to put into words and I know I'm preaching to the choir because y'all hit millions of balls too, but we hit millions of balls trying to get better at this game. And we went through different processes. We went through different teachers. We went through, you know, we were chasing the whole, our Holy grail is what we were chasing. And you know, we thought maybe this person over here might have it and this person over here might have it. And when it came right down to it, it was really an accumulation of a lot of different ideas that we gathered about us and about others. And we put them into a plan and we worked the plan. And, you know, I don't see enough amateur golfers that actually have a plan. They, they, they're just on a mission to get better. And they never develop a plan on how they're going to do it. I mean, do y'all agree with that? Well, and I, yeah. And I would say if they do have a plan, it, it ends up becoming too short-sighted and they divert too fast. If the results aren't exactly where they need to be right away. There's, there's, there's three things at play here that I see 
every day. You know, 12 handicapper, solid player, gets up there, back right pin, pulls it to 30 feet left from 150 yards, slams his club. And I say, why'd you slam your club? I pulled that. That's a terrible shot. I say, how far do you think that is? He goes, I don't know, like 30 feet. And then I dial up PGATour.com and show him that's inside the tour average. And he's like, yeah, that can't be right. It's right here, buddy. You know, uh, that's number one. Uh, number two is, you know, Chase and I, you and I have discussed this and Hal just said it. The elite golfers know, you know, you ask a tour player, oh, you got a new coach. You guys are working on something. How long did it take before you were totally comfortable with it? Uh, about 12 to 18 months. And the 25 handicappers are complaining that I hit a small bucket and they still have their normal miss. But here, I, I just, I had a guy, here is where, where the lack of understanding gets people in trouble. Guy comes to me the other day, he's like at his third lesson and he's making nice progress. And he goes, okay, he's probably about a 13, 14. And he goes, okay, Monty, I'm willing to put in the work. I can go to the driving range for two hours, four or five days a week. How long before I can have a tour level golf swing like the guys on TV or even someone like you? I said, never. And he was mad. He was real. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, I just said I was willing to put in the effort. I go, well, you know, I'm not insulted, but it's very insulting of you to think that you can get a tour level swing in eight to 10 hours a week of effort when all of the guys on TV and me from the age of 15 to 30 are 40 to 80 hours a week at the golf course trying to get that right. And, you know, I've been breaking par for 40 years and I'm still trying to figure it out. And he goes, and his, his, his response was precious. He goes, well, that makes total sense. And now I feel like a total dumbass for even asking that question. And so this last, you know, five or 10 minutes of discussion we've had here is literally the biggest reason why golfers don't get better. They have a warped sense of what good golf is. They have unrealistic expectations of what they are capable of in a short period of time. If someone, if it, I say this all the time, if a 15 handicap comes to me and says, someday I want to be a scratch golfer, I'm like, I'm good with that. But if they say, you know, I want to hit, start averaging 13 or 14 greens in regulation this year, I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. So it, it's, you know, your, your short-term goal, this is, this is what I always tell everybody, and your short-term goals need to be extremely modest, extremely modest. You can make your long-term goals as fancy as you want, okay? Reach for the stars, do whatever you want, but your short-term goals, you know what? In the next six months, I want to make sure that my setup is adequate. No one's ever going to say that. But that is a goal that everyone should have. The same, your setup's the same for this next six months, right? That's like, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, 
Well, I always say too, would you ever go into a, to a personal, go to a personal trainer and say, Hey, I want to be the next LeBron James in 10 years. Like, yeah, I make that joke all of the time. Yeah. Like they don't understand just, I mean, that's a thing too, just how good these tour players are, but even then how, how we say fragile, how fragile they are mentally and how they're chasing every rock too, right? Like you're looking under every rock to improve. And that that's the, that's the funny part about all this. Like the golfers, I guess it's because, you know, your 20 handicap can play the same golf course that Hal Sutton can play and play from the same distances and, and one or two times can hit a shot that would be worthy of Hal Sutton. Right. But they don't view Hal Sutton as LeBron James. And it's no. like these guys are you know, how so much better than he's on the same level as LeBron and basketball players are never going to say, Oh, I want to be the next LeBron, but there's 10 handicaps that go shoot even par one time. And they're like, okay, PJ tour, here I come. It's like, Oof, just wait, just stop. No, I, you know, you know, it, it's funny you say that because nobody thinks they can get off the couch and hit 103 mile per hour or Chapman fastball or tackle Derek Henry or, dunk on LeBron James but everybody you know all the guys that are built like me 50 I'm 54 years old and I'm 30 pounds overweight and guys built just like me that sit at a desk 40 hours a week come to my lesson team and say okay how do I get my hips as open as Dustin Johnson at impact and I say <laughs> you know I don't have an answer for you <laughs> Did, did you ever get questions like that? How, like, did, did you ever get offended by like, look, you're, you're comparing me to, you're not comparing me to the Michael Jordans or the, you know, the, the best of the other, other sports. No. Well, you know, nothing. I'm past being offended. I mean, if you get on Twitter very long, you're going to get offended. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, people throw rocks and they live in a glass house on Twitter, you know, so my, I'm not offended very easily. And, uh, you know, I just take it with a grain of salt when people are talking about elevating their game to having open hips, their hips as open as Dustin Johnson at impact, you know, I mean, who, who does, who, who has that, who can achieve that? 75% of the tour doesn't get near that open. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, Chasing outliers is always, always a fun one too. Well, you know, it, you know, we can make jokes about this, but it's actually detrimental to their improvement. Um, you know, I, I know, I know you get this all the time. Everybody wants tour shaftling at impact. And you're like, well, do you swing 115 or 120 miles an hour? No. Well, if you got that much shaftling, you're not going to get the ball in the air, you know? People want to be like the pros, not like instead of being the best version of themselves. Yep. One of the things I think that that faucet that decade does a good job of is comparing handicap ranges to the next level below. Like I think if a 20 handicap or a 10 handicap would look at what five handicap golfers do versus plus seven or plus 10 handicap golfers do like tour pros, right? We could always improve a little bit. Just like I liked what you said about modest goals because golf's going to going to kick our rear it's going to win out every time so if, every we, time. if we can have some modest goals like hey we're working on a little bit of a different pressure shift in transition i want to own this in six months it's like okay we can we can realistically do that and we're going to give ourselves enough time to actually work on scoring a little bit because if our goal is to fix this by next week we say it all the time it, it's going to look pretty 
but you can't go play golf. You can't hit it like that. So, you know, I like, I like what you said about modest goals. And I also think like even your example of setup is so important because that's boring and that's easy. Oh yeah. That uh, for a 10 handicap, I'm going to come to Monty Scheinbloom for a lesson and he's going to tell me I got to get my setup right in six months. <laughs> I got that in an hour. Right. But, but they don't, but they don't, that's not anywhere close where, you know, how would go out and hit balls or go to the course and like practice setup and making sure setup and, and Furick talked about this, Mike, making sure setup and grip and everything is perfect every time. It's one of the reasons why the Asian culture is kicking our rear in golf too, because they're more disciplined than we are. The, the girls, yes. their parents are, are, are a lot harder on the girls, on the, on the young, young girls and even the boys than are than the Americans are. And they're too, they're more disciplined. They're, they're kicking our tail because they're going to make them do the same thing every time over and over and over and over and over again until they get it right. Yeah, well, totally. One of the things that I'll add to that is just, it's easy to get my setup right on this map in here all the time. Yeah. But when you go to the golf course and it's easy to do on the driving range too, because it's flat, the lie is perfect, the tee's pointed in the right direction and everything else. But when you hit the golf course, the tee may be pointed over to the right, but your setup needs to be set up correctly. They're not even, their brain isn't elevated enough into the mature enough into the game that they can actually process all of this so that their setup does become the same thing. The golf course changes everything. It's, you know, Al, on, on your point, um, the number of golfers that are aware that visually they are going to line up with the direction of the tee box is almost zero. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then here's, the, and again, this scene, well, big deal, Monty, you know, I get this answer all the time. I'm like, I'll say, wait, 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 time out. You realize you're aimed in the direction of the tee box, which is like 40 yards right of where you're trying to hit it. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Big deal. Who cares? I lined up right. I'm like, yeah. But when you combine that with the amateur mentality of fixing every bad shot, here's what that gets them in trouble. They set up 40 yards right with the angle of the tee box. They put their best possible swing at it, hit it 40 yards into the trees and say, oh, I didn't release that one. Then on the next one, they snap hook it out of bounds when they're aimed down the fairway with the tee box. Oh, oh, I snap hooked that one. I need to hold this one, the release off on the next one. Then the next one, the tee box is aimed 40 yards right again. Then they slice it 70 yards right. Then they're on the fourth hole and they're going to shoot 112. So this is where that, not paying attention to your setup and then trying to correct every bad shot, all of a sudden, you know, a, a swing that started out good turns into the worst round of the year. So I'll add one element to that. Everybody would be a lot better golfer if every tee box was cut round instead of rectangular towards the end of the fairway because you become lazy and you just expect that tee box to be lined up where you want to go and if it were round and there wasn't a walk path cut through it then all of a sudden the responsibility becomes yours to make sure you're lined up correctly which is the way a professional golfer takes that responsibility on every time he gets to the tee but no amateur golfer does that none 
that's pretty powerful and it's something i hadn't even really thought about it you think about the the ropes on the range i mean even that gives us a kind of squares everything up and gives us a chance to kind of get kind of get lined up and i mean i've even felt it too on the last times i played i set up on a tee box and the tee markers were 50 yards to the right and i found myself i just set up and i was like wait a minute something's off here and then i backed up and i was like oh my gosh look at those tee markers but i you know i didn't look at it right away i didn't notice it until i till i'd gotten over it but you know, if I make a half decent golf swing there, yeah, I'm hitting it 50, 60 yards right. And then thinking, what the heck happened? Did I, what did I do there? You know, and th is that, you know, is that Monty Shinebloom really right on telling me I need to do this with my golf swing? It's causing me to hit it 50, 60 yards right, you know, and then, then now they're going down a slippery slope. Exactly right. It's really funny. I, um, I, I that's why I tell people don't, don't, oh, so Monty, should I put an alignment stick on the ground? No. Now, I don't like that at all. And the reason why I don't like that is I'm going to use a word Hal used. It, it makes you lazy. Now, now all you're doing, I mean, anybody that's not Stevie Wonder can line up to an alignment stick that's six inches away from the ball. And it takes away learning the skill. I never hit down the middle of the range, ever. I always aim to one end, one end of the other and make sure that I'm aligned because I've been um, and that was another thing that early in my career I was terrible at um, aligning correctly so how how do you how do you preach somebody that comes to you with alignment issues how do okay. you so so this this is a little bit technical in, 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 to start with there's a there's a, a a scientific principle called the parallax effect and it's how you know, when you change the, uh, the camera's perception to an object, it changes the perception of where the object is. Well, your eyes are camera lenses. So when you're standing behind the ball, looking down the fairway and you walk around, the parallax effect of where the target is, is enormously different, okay? So now everybody always said, oh, well, Monty, you know, I pick, you know, Jack Nicholas said, pick out the one little intermediate spot out in front of the ball and line up to that. Here's what I found. That doesn't reduce the parallax enough. So what I have people do is I have them pick out two spots out in front of the ball, whether it's a putt or a drive or anything in between, where your intended start line is somewhere in between those two spots. And then aiming in between those two spots, that reduces the parallax enough where people are at least competent in alignment and then the question begs well monty you're never going to have the target directly in between two random spots i'm like yeah sometimes you have to little aim a little closer to the right one sometimes you have to aim a little closer to the left one but here is you know this pretty that pretty much works for 80 to 90 percent of golfers and the irony is is i'll give someone a lesson They'll be lining up perfectly. They'll come back the next time and they'll be lining horribly. I go, you picking out two spots? Oh, no, I'm just trying to like look at it. And I go, well, you're lining up right again. So, you know, these little, Hal said it perfectly, these little boring, tedious, you know, parts of your routine is where you get better. But nobody wants to, you know, Nobody wants to do that. They just want to get up there, smash driver as hard as they can, take out some aggression and say, you know, if I can learn to hit driver straight, I can hit anything. And it kind of doesn't work that way. It works the other way. Well, there's so many things in golf that you can't control. 
So you better control the things that you can control. Absolutely. And that's what the professionals, that's what they do well. They learn to control the things that they can control. They get really efficient at that. And then they understand the things they can't control and they let that go. And, um, you know, a person that's worried about the wind all the time, I mean, we got no control over the wind. And, I mean, if you spend a great deal of time trying to figure that out, I mean, the obvious, yeah, we all figured the obvious out. But, uh, you know, go stand on the 12th tee at Augusta and tell me that you're for sure where the wind is blowing there. I mean, there was a lot of different theories, you know, wherever the wind was blowing on number 11, where the flag was blowing, that never seemed to work for me. <laughs> so... I was there in 2018 and 2019 as a spectator, and I saw one of the funniest things ever. Uh, it, it was, uh, God, I'm, I can't remember off the top. It was a, a Japanese player. Uh, it wasn't Matsuyama. It was a guy I hadn't heard of before. And I'm watching him hit on number 12. And that flag is coming dead into him. I mean, hard. And he throws up the grass, the grass is coming at him. And um, he hit what looked like a fair amount of club and the, the flag never wavered. And he hit it 30 yards up into the hill. And he just looked at his caddy and they just laughed. You know, it was during a practice round, so it wasn't a big deal. But right. um, he just laughed because, you know, he played it for into the wind. And for whatever reason, the shot played downwind. Yeah, I've never really seen that whole play hard into the wind. I mean, I played there a lot of times. So uh, I got fooled with it more downwind than uh, I did with it. You know, the trees are so tall behind it. It really didn't affect it into the wind behind it. Uh, so. Yeah, like you said, you know, you just never know. How I really liked what you said about pros control the things they can control a lot better than amateurs do. And I, I just kind of wrote down some stuff like you guys did a much better job of controlling your process, all the process stuff that, that, that you know, there's no variability in that for the most part, no variability in this stuff from alignment, from setup, from posture, from pre-shot routine, coming up with a precise game plan from post-shot routine and pro shot post shot sorry thought process um we talk about all the time about the 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 roller coaster of golf swing the roller coaster of mental of your you know your your mental belief and 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 commitment levels and stuff and you know you guys did a, did such a better job of controlling the part of the roller coaster that you could control and and then you would ebb and ebb and flow through really really good stuff when mechanically everything lined up and you you'd go out and win well you know <laughs> it didn't take long of being out there to realize that uh figure out how to control the things you can control that's just the bottom line, you know, I, one of the things that's pretty obvious, anybody from six feet or less uh, should do the same thing every time on a six foot putt or less. It should take about the same amount of time. They should look at it the same way. Uh, but yet people get out of their rhythm. They get out of their time. 
they think about it too much. They make more out of it than it is. And the next thing you know, it's, it's the biggest deal in the world. And, you know, professional golfers, if you watch them, and I'm talking about people playing on the people playing this weekend in the Ryder cup, uh, you will see them do the same thing over and over again. If they take too much time, you better be, they may miss the putt. I can just tell you that they may miss it because they're worried about it. They, they think there's something in there that they're not taking into account and they're looking for that. Bryson Chambo. Yeah. Yeah. On, on Hal's point, this is, that is such an excellent point on Hal's point. I tell people, I go on the tour, six feet is barely over a 50% make rate on tour. I say, there are so many factors that you can't take into account imperfect greens, whatever, whatever. I say, the only thing you can do, go through your routine, hit it as well as you can, and it'll go in or it won't. Yep. That's right. Control the things you can control, be committed to it and accept the results. I can't put it simpler than I just put it right there. No, it's, it's, that's perfect. And just because you missed the first one or pulled the first one doesn't mean you're going to pull the rest of them. You know, just right. go do it again, go do it again, go do it again. So uh, kind of on this subject, I have a question for Hal that his answer is going to be so valuable. This is on this topic we're talking about, control the things you can control. So I've witnessed this more times than I can count. I've been at tour ranges on Friday afternoon where all the guys that missed the cut are out there. All right. And, and how, you know, you can give your insight into this. When amateurs have a bad ball striking round, they go out and they try and, oh, well, I was missing everything to the right, so I need to work on my release. My observation is, and how you, you tell me if I'm, my observation is correct or if it's, you know, how, what part of it is off, is those guys on Friday afternoon that have missed the cut, they're not trying to change their swing to fix the misses they were having that day, they are trying to reintroduce what they know how to do to hit it, what they've been successful with, not making drastic changes. They're trying to do what they know how to do. Well, if they're still at the tournament site on Friday afternoon and they know they missed the cut, you're exactly right. If they're trying to make major changes, they've flown somewhere to do it. I can tell you that right now. So, because they can't do it on their own. So they're looking for whoever it is that they know can help them, can see them, can produce a plan for them to be able to do it. And uh, so, yes, they're looking. If they're there Friday afternoon working on their game, they're trying to reintroduce themselves to the things they know how to do and, and, and do it repeatedly so that they can gain a little confidence for the next week. Okay, let's uh, let's change change course a little bit. Ryder Cup predictions. Who we got? I'll go first. I'll go first. I'm I think America's going to win. I'm feeling it. I'm going 15-13 Team USA. I'm, everybody's picking Europe. I'm going. I, I'm going Devil's Advocate here. I think USA wins. How? No, I'll go last. Monty, <laughs> you go next. You know, how's, got, how's got the insider information? He's a Ryder Cup captain, so he's. he's uh, I don't have any insider information. <laughs> So my, you know, I've been, so I, I have to tell a quick story 
to tell you, I mean, there's never, there's always a story where I'm concerned. You know that, Hal. So in 1991, when Dave Stockton Sr. was the Ryder Cup captain, uh, when it was at Kiwa Island, one of my best friends at the time was Dave Stockton Jr. And he had a cell phone in 1991. And during that Ryder Cup, I probably had 30 different phone conversations with him while he was there witnessing all of it. And so that was the first Ryder Cup where I got all fired up about it. Um, Cause I, you know, I really didn't, you know we know the story where I had no idea what the U S amateur championship was. And, you know, I heckled Hal at the PGA cause he was playing against Nicholas and I didn't know what anything about golf. I just learned how to play. So when I saw how great the 91 Ryder Cup was, I'm like, well, this is my favorite tournament now. So I've watched every single Ryder Cup intently since 1991. And it's, it's never about who has the best players. It's always about intangibles. Because when your attitude is positive, when there's a, a, a good vibe around things, you, you play better, more putts go in. You know, the ball takes better bounces when you hit it offline. That's an intangible thing that every guy, when you're feeling good about your game and you snap hook one toward the houses, it hits a tree and drops down one foot inbounds. When you're struggling, it lands 20 yards inbounds and hits the side of the cart path and kicks OB. So there's a, there's a, there's a karma to golf and your attitude definitely affects that. So coming back to my prediction i just think there's so much outside nonsense going on with the you know kevin na got left off why is this guy on this guy hasn't done anything brooks and bryson are fighting you know Cantley had a, an issue with bryson you know and nobody likes brooks you know dj brooks doesn't care there's just so much going on there's too much negative energy um and the the, the europeans they drink together, they party together, they fly together, you know, they're going to have a much more fun time. So I'm saying it's, it's going to be an ass kicking 16, 12 Europe. Smoke <laughs> Okay. Hmm. So I think it's going to be somewhere in between what you two guys <laughs> predicted. Uh, I think uh, the Americans are a lot better on paper as they always are. Uh, the Europeans got a lot more experience. The Europeans are going to go in there. They don't care whether they tee off on one or the odd holes or the even holes. The Americans are going to care because they're the man. So, you know, we've got, uh, I think it takes humility to play well there. And I'm not sure. Uh, it always seemed like uh, the Europeans become better team players and the Americans are better individual players. And, you know, I pray that it's not that way this year. I, you know, I hope everybody uh, gathers together beforehand and puts their priorities in the right place and says, Hey, I don't care if I tee off on the even holes or the odd holes. I just want to hit a good shot when it's my turn for America. Sure. So, you know, this is releasing next week. So we'll, uh, we'll be able to look back and see how, uh, how close our predictions were. So it'll be fun. All right. Uh, golf school. Let's talk golf school briefly. So Monty, you do a bunch of these each year. We've done, we've done one or two a year for the past four or five 
four or five years. Um, talk a little bit about what goes on at the golf schools. Um, we've got a few open spots left for this one. Um, why somebody needs to come down to Houston and come see us. Well, here's, so I like the group dynamic way more than the one hour lesson. Um, and there's a reason for this in a one hour lesson, you're going to learn one detail on how to make your golf swing better. And as we've been discussing for the last hour plus, how your golf swing is working is an extremely small part of becoming a better golfer. When we have the school and we have the group together, one of the biggest things that comes out of the group is the, 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 the breaking down of the myths of, of getting better at golf, not just in the swing, you know, just to use the stupid example, the drive for show, putt for dough, you know, that's been disproven by pretty much every metric. Yeah. You got to putt well too. Um, you know, and all the swing cliches during the discussion, people's um, how to practice better. Like people don't know that once you practice for more than 20 minutes, your brain checks out. Well, if your brain checks out mentally, you're going back to your default pattern because you're not into it anymore. Um, shotgunning balls, whatever. So it's, it's three days of understanding what it is to become a better golfer, both in your approach to playing, um, your approach to practice, and, but the biggest thing is, you know, everything, a lot of the things we've been talking about is the things that stand in people's way is this is what they think better golf is. And nine, nine times out of 10, maybe even 99 times out of a hundred, what people think good golf is, is not correct. So over the course of three days, we are given the opportunity to change all of their incorrect perceptions, whether it's the swing practice approach to the game on the course, whatever, we get to change their perceptions. Whereas in an hour lesson, you know, you're lucky if you get to change one idea. Well, and the other thing I like to say is there's not a, another golf school that somebody could attend that has three guys with as many PGA tour wins as we have. So, I mean, you know, 14 PJ tour wins between the three of us. I mean, we're, it's, it's not anywhere close. Right. <laughs> I love that joke. I use that joke all the time. And I love <laughs> well, I'll add something else to what Monty said, you know, a learning environment. It's not just a one-on-one -on -one learning environment. It's kind of like when we were in class, you know, and you're thinking something and somebody asked a question over here, well, I need to know that too. And, you know, it prompts your learning experience to a higher level being around other people that are trying to get better. Everybody that comes to a golf school like that, their intention is to get better. You know, I'm not sure that everybody takes a one hour lesson from me. Their intention is to get better. I don't know what their intention is. Half the time. <laughs> so, I mean, my intention is to help them get better, but I'm not sure what they're actually in there for. Well, and, and we cover so many areas of expertise. I mean, obviously, I joke about the 14 PJ Tour wins, but 
you know, there's a lot of people, Monty and I could get together and there's a lot of other instructors that could do similar to what we do, right? I mean, Monty, Monty obviously has a very unique background. I have a very unique background, but there's, it's easy to have a bunch, have two good instructors that are going to teach golf swing for three days. But then to hear your stories, Hal, and to be able to, to pick your brain on performance and mindset and, and how it felt to go head to head with Tiger, how it felt to play in a Ryder Cup, all that stuff, like, you put you put all three of us together, and it's. Um, I mean, anytime we've done them, the the reviews and the the experience from everybody is has been awesome. You know, so it's um, they're always fun, and I think that um, you know it's it's a uh, it's it's an experience school, and they're gonna they're gonna improve their their golf games in many different ways. Well, we're gonna go out and play too. Yeah. So they're going to get some playing lesson with it too. It's not just all golf swing. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't think there's many that you could attend that would cover as many things as we're going to cover for them. Yeah. All right, Monty. Last but not least, um, at rebelliongolf.com, you've got a bunch of videos that you've you've posted and and um, have helped a ton of golfers with. Just released a new one. So um, talk to us about broomstick broom power something to do broom with force broom force broomstick force something <laughs> yeah so it's called broom force and you know it's it's just a cute marketing name but the impetus was was for you know the biggest either conscious or subconscious misperception that golfers have in their swing is they want to swing the club directly to the ball and that's just not what good players do. So I was given a lesson about 18 months ago. And I said, look, if you were, if I handed you a broom and I wanted you to sweep a pile of dust or dirt where that golf ball is, and I told you to do it from up here where the top of the golf swing, would you swing the broom directly to the ball? And the guy goes, no, that would be stupid. And I go, what would you do? He goes, I'd swing the broom to the ground a couple of feet behind the ball and then sweep. And I go, okay. And I gave him a second. He goes, oh, okay, 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 okay. I get what you're saying. And no joke, from one swing to the next, he went from a literal 25 handicap golf swing to an eight or a 10 handicap golf swing from one swing to the next, just with that visual in his head. And it struck me that this is a good visual for people to have. So that's kind of the impetus for the video. But basically what the entire video is about is we have been so inundated with fire the body and leave the arms to do nothing and be along for the ride. You see this every day. How many golfers out of, see, you have a lot of elite players, but take away the, the elite juniors and college players that you have. The regular Joes that come in, how many of them have their arms linked up to their pivot coming into the ball? Zero. Okay. All of them either fire the hips and leave the arms behind and you get a big gap or they leave the arms in the same position with the chest and spin the chest open. Would you agree that pretty much sums up every golfer out there between the handicap of three and whatever? I would say it's good player, bad player. I would say bad players are the arms stay up with the chest and they come over the right. top. And then the the good players still gonna have this and either drag handle or they they just get it behind them a little bit too much. And then and then so and then both of those 
are totally misinterpreted by, I'm sorry to say, other instructors as well. The ones that have their arms behind them, the better players, they run out of range of motion, their hips stall, their arms and hands take over. Ooh, I have an armsy handsy swing. Yeah, you got to fire that body more. And then the ones that spin out, oh, your arms are starting the downswing, which we know from 3D that that never happens. And they're like, oh, yeah, you got to get your body turning more and have your arms be more passive. So the whole video is how engaging the arms properly in transition the same exact way solves both of those problems. You don't have to fix that step differently. The solution to both of those problems is exactly the same, which is have the arms engage earlier, not first, but earlier and in a proper direction. So when you get down around the ball, that everything can kind of can kind of work together. Awesome. How long is the uh, how long is the video? I want to say it's about 40, 45 minutes right around there. Awesome. And it's 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 basically, you know, out of the 45 minutes, it's five minutes of me blathering on like I like to about here's what the problem is. And then it's 40 minutes of drills on how to rectify it. And then me teaching three golfers with these problems on, you know, how, how to get it done. So they can actually see these things, these drills, these feels, these ideas working on someone during a lesson. Live. Awesome. Awesome, sir. Well, again, that video is called Broom Force. I'll get it right this time. Broom Force at rebelliongolf.com. Monty Scheinbloom, good friend of ours. Been We've been doing stuff together for a long, long, long time. Um, one of the best instructors in the country. Great instructor down in Southern California. So if you need an excuse to go travel down to Southern California in the next couple months when it's cold up north, go see Monty Scheinbloom because he's awesome. He talks a little bit too much at times, but that's okay. That's why we love him, right? All the time. Not <laughs> all the time. That's what I do. Well, as always, thanks for coming on. Uh, we love you. We'll see you in a couple in a couple of weeks here. Uh, October, their golf school is the 16th through the 18th of October. Got a few spots left, so come see us if you guys want to want to get all three of us together in the same room, and and we'll uh, we'll have a lot of fun together. So, Monty, thanks again. Hal, take us out. Uh, Monty, thanks for being on being our first repeat and. Uh, uh, we look forward to having you on the third time too, as well. Anyway, uh, y'all listen, check us out on social media. Come see us at the golf school. Everybody will enjoy it. Thanks guys. Thanks. Be the right club today. Yes.